Father, we don't have to wonder what kind of king you are, and we don't have to wonder what kind of kingdom your kingdom is. We only need to look at a cross. We don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to be accepted by you. We don't deserve to be included in your glorious and good and generous heavenly kingdom reign. And yet we are because you, our great king, have taken our sin on yourself in the person of your son. And so we thank you that our sins are no more. They're washed as white as snow. They're all gone. We're accepted here, and we can enjoy your reign as those who belong safely in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Please open with me in your copy of Scripture to the book of Matthew. The gospel according to Matthew will be in chapter 13 today, verse 44. 13, verse 44. Just one verse. It's going to make up for next week. It's going to be 12 chapters next week. Next week, we're going to start a series, a five-week series through the book. You could almost call it the gospel of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah's 66-chapter work. We're going to work through it in five weeks. It shouldn't feel heavy in terms of content, but it should feel heavy, I pray, in terms of glory and in terms of grace and in terms of gospel, and it will lead us to Christmas. There is so many of our, our beautiful promises that find fulfillment in our New Testament have an anchor in the prophet Isaiah's words. So pray for me as we prepare that series, and um, we'll look forward to next week. Twelve chapters, but for right now, just one verse, just one verse. You've heard that Jesus is king. What kind of king is he? Consider, friends, his kingdom this morning in this, in this simple sentence. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Well, today we come to our third installment in a short three-part series, Christ's Church, Our Heritage, all together in the gospel. And our aim in this series has been to gather our attention as a church and as leaders for the sake of our mission around the most important things and to do so through some simple tools, a simple tool we might call a trustworthy saying. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to his churches, would, would put things in simple sentences, and that's what we've been trying to do. Sentences that are biblical, pregnant, memorable, and potent that move the church and focus her, focus her eye. And we pray that, that God will be doing that for us through these uh, sermons. The gospel identity that is ours in Christ, our gospel mission. And this morning we come to our gospel vision. We'll do a little bit of, of uh, review here before the sermon is out. But this morning we come to our gospel, our gospel vision. That's a seeing term. It's a look into the future term. We asked as elders not so long ago, what would God have us to see as we look into the future? Sometimes we can think about concrete things, I mean, almost literally like buildings or plans. But what would God from Scripture have us set before our eyes? What would he have be as our point of focus as we look, as we look ahead as a church in light of who we are in our identity in Christ and who who, what mission we have been given by Jesus. And we considered there are many things that we might set before us and that we ought to and that Scripture will in the course of its, its preaching and its reading, reading, no doubt, the glorious return of Jesus. 
certainly the new creation. These visions full of Jesus given to us in Scripture, we find that Jesus is himself never alone in them. He is surrounded by his people, men and women. In a vision given to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, a vision for the church's vision, we see that from every tribe and language and people and nation, there are those singing, worthy is the lamb who is slain. That's the church's vision. It's a vision of Jesus surrounded by his people that he has won, singing to him in praise, their hearts filled with joy and satisfaction in his perfect presence forever. That's the vision of the church. That's the vision that, that Jesus holds out before his church so that his church might look forward to that which she'll be a part of. It's a people-filled vision. It's the people-filled vision that compelled the Son of Man to come and to seek and to save the lost. It's true that our vision is, is filled with the glory of God and the glory of Jesus. And sometimes in wanting to accent the glory of God, we can, and in not wanting to be man-centered in our Christianity and our life as a church and our ministry, we may miss that, that Jesus himself came to seek something, and that was to seek and to save that which was lost. He was compelled to chase down the one sheep. We have the parable of the lost coin, people, those whom he came to save are precious to him. In fact, we're told that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. The Pharisees in Jesus' day did not like that he was spending his time among tax collectors and sinners. And so he told that parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep that he chased, chased down because it was precious to him. And so if you're in Christ, you're precious to him. And he's chased you down. And he does it for his glory. But he's not disinterested in you. For he is glorified. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are glorified. When all of your life is set in its affections on, on him. When you are filled to the fullness of God. When the surpassing love of Jesus. When the surpassing riches of Christ. When, when his love which is beyond all knowledge is known in your heart. He is glorified. That's what he loves. He loves to be known in your heart. He chases down sheep. He seeks after the coin, and all of heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. So we love sinners as a church. We're sinners, and Jesus has loved us. Well, through a process as elders, we've landed on, on the parable we opened with as, as an anchor text for a, a vision statement, a statement of what we long to see God do. And I'll lay that out before we're done, but for now, we want to just Focus on the passage, on its own terms. Put our ear to the ground of the text. Hear what God would say. It comes to us in a parable. What's a parable? That might be a new term to you. Well, parables are simple stories. That has to do with their form. They're simple stories. They're often super simple, even a snapshot. This one is a single sentence long. Parables are not the whole story, we could say they're simple stories. They're also not the whole story. That has to do with their function. They're very limited in what they're trying to do. Each one, not every element corresponds to something specific. A real mess has been made out of, uh, out of some parables, trying to draw a line from this element to that element. We don't need to be doing that. They usually make one straightforward point or maybe one point with two angles or maybe, maybe there are two things to be 
to be shown in a parable, and that's the case in ours this morning. They're simple stories. They're, they're not the whole story in terms of their function. They put you and me in the story. They don't just convey information. They discriminate. They sort. They're a filtering device. Jesus tells them, and you can find yourself in it. And if you find yourself confused and walking away saying, oh, well, it has sorted you out, maybe without you knowing it. They're spoken to hearers who should be able to hear themselves in the story. And so, and so we can, and I pray you find yourself in it, filled with, with joy as this, as this man trampling through a field found himself with joy. Well, today's passage is a simple story. Uh, there's like zero character development here. Storytellers, you might be dissatisfied. It is, it is not meant to drag on. It's not meant to, um, to, uh, to take up a whole lot of time. It's made to make a simple point, and sure does. It's hardly the whole story about salvation. There's more to the doctrine of salvation than is here. In fact, if you try to draw a line from every element of this story to the doctrine of salvation, you might get a little confused. We have to remember it. It makes a simple point, so we'll train our ear on that. But it pictures what we want God to do among our neighbors and the nations and what he's done among us. It gives for us some beautiful language about his kingdom and what it is for us, all that it is for us. Today's story will help us see how much we have in Jesus and how much we have to offer the world in him. His disciples, in hearing this parable had been about hearing Jesus proclaim the good news of the kingdom and its arrival. And he had sent them out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and its arrival in Jesus. And in a string of parables in chapter 13 of Matthew, he teaches concerning the good news of the kingdom. We're going to look at the text, and then, we'll, and then a little later we'll, we'll look at a trustworthy saying. So our text, first let's ask this question, what is the kingdom of heaven like? What is the kingdom of heaven like? That is, after all, why he, he tells this little sentence-long story. When I want to learn about a foreign country, I usually, I usually Google it. You professors will know that that's the way that research gets done these days. In parables, we find in Matthew 13 that we have a, a screen full of Google images or videos, rather, of the kingdom and what it's like. Little snippets little three-minute, little 15-second snippets that give us an insight into the kingdom. We have the parable of the, the sower who, who sowed seed on different types of ground, and it may sprout out for a moment and, and look like it is taken, but it hasn't really taken. It's choked out by the cares of the world and persecution. You, you'll, have soil, you'll, have, you'll have seeds sown on rocky soil, on, on different kinds of soil, and on, and on good soil, and it, it multiplies. Oh, it multiplies differently for different people, some tenfold, another, another hundred, but it, but it multiplies. Where, where, it, where it takes, it, it takes, and it, it bears fruit. Now, the parable of the weeds, some grows up among the other good plants. The parable of the leaven and, and bread, can't quite see it, it grows. Seems to me we have mostly baking and farming images. I don't know a whole lot about farming, and I know quite a bit less about baking. In our parable, we have a video of a treasure here, about a 15-second video, in a field, and we have an estate sale, and a very happy man. 
He loses everything he's got, everything he's collected, everything he's saved for, everything he's earned. He doesn't seem to have a problem with it. This video makes you want to keep watching and clicking around and learning about this kingdom. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Well, this parable forces us to consider its value first. Consider its value. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. That's something we should understand. The story of human history, is it not, is the story of, of treasure hunting, the treasure of land sought and the treasure of energy sought and gold, the history of nations and movements is the history of, of these kinds of things taken. The history of invasions and migrations is the story of nations going out after treasure of this kind or another, this natural resource or another with which they can build and do and advance and grow. Nations are always after something. Nations made themselves up of people. Individuals are themselves treasure hunters. You and I, each of us, treasure hunting the story of each human person's history. We were at the beach a few weeks ago, and I couldn't help but notice a man strolling and just waving this metal detector over the ground. Um, I was there to relax. Uh, he was there to find some treasure, I guess. A little jewels. I suppose you lay down on your, your, your blanket at the beach, and you take your ring off because you're going to go get in the water, and then you clean up your towel, and your ring falls in the... I, I was almost going to go find myself a... A uh, metal detector and see if I couldn't find some precious metals and some, and some jewels. We spent most of our time looking for, for intact shells. They're mostly destroyed by the time they're on the beach. And shark's teeth. I found a shark's tooth. Or someone who asked me what I was doing gave me a shark's tooth. They found them like 15 seconds after it took me an hour and I couldn't find one myself. So you've got treasure hunters on the beach. They're, they're searching for something and there's a kind of an addiction to it. It's a little picture of uh, our whole lives, isn't it? We kind of train our attention on, on the dollar or the house or the next thing, and uh, it's kind of like us. Maybe you're here and you're a, a little baby this morning. Are you a little baby? And you like mom's keys. They're valuable for their, their shape and their, their shine. Maybe you're here and you're a teenager approaching 16 and you're looking for, for the keys to a car, which are valuable to you for the places it can take you and the independence that you'll, you'll feel. College degrees might be the key to your future. The right mentorship or internship, the key to your, to your vocational success. For some, the treasure you long for is a spouse, the key to someone's heart, for someone to have the key to yours. For others, it's children, valuable for the support and companionship in life. God's wired into our hearts. So many of the treasures we seek are, are perfectly appropriate. For some, it's the key to a house, valuable for the security it provides you and anything you can fit inside. We're, we're, um, we're after stuff. And this search for treasure, this seeking for happiness, sometimes can go wrong, can't it? We're, we're, we're uh, raised right. We raise our kids right to seek after the right things. But, but you've got to seek after them in the right amount and at, at the right cost. If any good thing you seek after becomes the main thing you seek after, it has a way of taking your life. Pascal's famously quoted as saying, all men seek happiness. This without exception. No one doesn't seek happiness, in other words. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it. 
It's the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this subject. This is the motive of every action of every man, even to those who hang themselves. So you see, every move that we make is in the motion of what we think will bring us the greatest happiness. And it's sad where the human soul can end up, that one might consider themselves in a better place dead. Well, there are so many sinful pursuits of our own in the course of life that don't give us the return. Um, and it's the same way. We follow after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air. We take the bait and we get lured in. And sometimes it gets really, 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 really ugly. And maybe you know that in your own life. Your pursuit of happiness has led you to some really, really terrible places. Maybe that's why you find yourself at church this morning. You're wondering if maybe, maybe there's something going on in here that, you, that, that if you found it is what you're looking for. Maybe you saw it in someone's life on their face. They had the joy you find in this person right here. What did they find in that field? You're after it. Well, if you're here for that, keep listening. But we should all know the, the effects of sin and how it doesn't pay us back. Some of the things we seek after in our, in our treasure hunt are just fine. But if we seek them for the wrong reasons or as an end in themselves or in the right amount, they can, things can go terribly, terribly wrong. What kind of treasure is the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Well, we need only to look at what the man does when he finds it. Jesus is telling this parable to teach us about its value. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, like the treasure hidden in the field, which a man found. What did he do when he found it? He stumbled upon it. He considered what he had found, and he immediately covered it up so that no one else would find it. Now, right there, you see parable isn't made to do everything for us. That is not what we do with the treasure when we find it. The point is, it's value. He wants to secure this treasure for himself. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. He sells all. And why does he sell all? Because what he has found in the treasure is more valuable than all. It's a treasure of treasures. It's more valuable than anything else. The kingdom of heaven is. Jesus' kingdom is more valuable than all else. Anything that you and I own, it is better than anything that you own. It is more lasting. It's unbreakable. It is bigger than anything else you and I all own. To lose all and to have it is to have lost as nothing. You see that? That's what Jesus is saying about his own kingdom. If you find it, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, it's more valuable, friends, than the entire universe and everything in the universe added together. A tremendous claim. He has either got something. He has either really got something or he is selling snake oil. He is either pulling the curtain back on the secret of the universe and indeed the secret of human happiness or he's pulling one over on all of us. He's nuts. And he's cruel. He's one or the other. Not nuts or cruel. He's either telling the truth or he's lying. Well, what is the treasure valued at? Well, there's no number in eternity that can account for its value. This guy knows it. This guy knows what he's found. In the parable, 
He knows exactly what he's found. And he didn't only look at his face. In his joy, he goes and sells all he has. The estate sale does not have him conflicted. What to keep, what to let go. Let it all go and let me buy the field. No sacrifice. Lose your life to save it. That's how the costs that are entailed in Christian discipleship and following Jesus are not actually costs. In the end, what we lose in following Jesus is not actually an expense to us because we're following him. And because in following him, we have him and his kingdom is forever. In his Joy, he sells all. Don't just read over that sentence and keep reading your Bible and then close it up and then move on with your day like you read something of meager importance. Slow down in your Bible reading so you don't miss this. Whatever it is, it's about to hit you in your email. Whatever it is you've got going on in the background of life, whatever it is that's smacking you in the face right now, if you have the kingdom of heaven in Jesus, you can endure any cost. And friends, I know we have to just believe what we see, don't we? We'll see in a moment. His kingdom is already and not yet. And when we have to believe that one day we'll actually fully experience this perspective to the degree that we wish we could right now. We sing of it. And we pray to know it more. And we believe it on the basis of God's word, but it's hard. And so we read the Bible and we slow down and we don't miss verses like this where Jesus is communicating to your soul and to mine, my heart and yours, the value of the kingdom. There is no loss in life if you have him. Let it all go for the sake of a kingdom whose king is omnipotent and all-wise and omniscient and all-loving, the God of the universe who made all things and who made us has made us for himself, and through Jesus Christ and his saving reign, he makes us to know him. So why doesn't everybody treasure the kingdom? Well, there's something else about the kingdom we're told. We're told its value. We're also told something about its visibility. Consider its visibility. Jesus' teaching on the kingdom can confuse us. If you were to lay all these kingdom teaching verses next to each other, you might, you might wonder if he's got his own stuff straight. Luke 11, that if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, and he does, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, he announces. And he travels and he announces and proclaims the coming, the arrival of the kingdom. Luke 17, look, here it is. They won't say, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. But then he teaches us to pray, doesn't he, in Matthew 6? Your kingdom come. We ask God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we read a bit about the kingdom in the New Testament letters, Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and it's not a matter of drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the, the Holy Spirit as we read this morning. From all this we conclude that the kingdom is not itself as theologians have said, a matter of realm or space or location, but a matter of reign, Jesus' saving reign. 
It is here and present, and it is real, and it has come in the coming of Jesus. But it doesn't look like it. The whole world is not yet submitted to that reign. All things are under his feet, and some things are fussing. Jesus' reign one day will be fully realized, and all things will be in perfect subjection to him. May you find yourself under his reign, happily receiving it before the day comes when you will be forced to receive it. And so he can speak of it as hidden in these terms. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. It's a hidden treasure. It's a, it's a buried treasure. I'm not the kind of person who likes to grow my food in the ground. I don't spend a whole lot of time uh, on grass unless I'm chopping it up. I don't spend a whole lot of time in fields. Uh, if I drive by a field, I don't pay attention to the field. I'm usually bored with a field. If I'm in a field, I'm trying to get through the field. I don't know what the guy was doing in a field or why he was in someone or whether he was in someone else's field to begin with. Uh, he didn't own it. I don't know all about the legalities of what happens when you find a treasure in some other guy's field and then you leave and you bury it and you go buy the field from him. None of that's the point. The point is the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man finds and he covers it up. It's unsuspecting. It's valuable. It's unsuspecting, like a mustard seed is unsuspecting. This is one of the parables in this chapter. He put another parable for them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger and than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its, its branches. It's unsuspecting, but it... But it's strong, and it will be revealed in its time for what it is. The kingdom of heaven was not obvious in the sound of a baby among animals or the name of a carpenter from Nazareth. It wasn't. The Jews expected a full-scale, immediate, total takeover kind of kingdom, Luke 19, 11. They heard these things, and he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of heaven was to appear immediately. And after Jesus is crucified and then he rises from the grave, we're told that the disciples gathered and they were awaiting the arrival of the kingdom. When's it coming? When's it coming? And they had to be taught. It doesn't come the way they thought it might. It comes a bit like mustard seed. Sometimes you can't even quite see it. Oh, but it will be shown for what it is. Jesus is correcting that assumption with these little pictures, for example, of a seed that grows, it is strong and it will be shown strong, but it will not look strong from every angle and through every set of eyes in the present age. The kingdom of heaven did not sound strong in the sound of a baby's voice among animals. The kingdom of heaven was not visible or strong to Judas who loved his coins. It didn't appear valuable to him. It didn't seem worth it to the crowds. It didn't seem powerful to Pilate. Is God hiding the kingdom? It's hidden in a field. Does God hide the kingdom? Yes and no. Jesus tells these parables. In one parable, he explains. His disciples say, then the disciples came and said, why do you speak them in parables? This is after he gave the parable to the sowers and he answered them. To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. 
But to them, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. It's a filtering device. It's a sorting mechanism. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You'll indeed hear, but never understand. You'll indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. He's speaking of their hearts spiritually and with respect to God. They've been closed. Their eyes have been closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Sometimes we, we close our eyes to what we know is true because we don't want to have to admit it and come to it and deal with it. And in sin, maybe this is your story right now. Maybe it's been your story. Maybe you're praying for somebody, and this appears to be their story at the moment. They're closing their eyes so they don't see. They don't want to know that it's true because they like their life. And in sin, we don't want to know the kingdom of God is what it is. We don't want to know that Jesus is the king. Because we love our life and we love ourselves as king. No, they've closed their eyes and they've shut their ears so that they would not see with their eyes and hear with their ears and turn and be healed. Apart from grace, we're nuts. We're insane. But God, through the miracle of the new birth, makes us to perceive the treasure for what, for what it is. This is why we call it hidden Some will look on Jesus and not perceive his value. Some will look on Jesus and know exactly what they have found. Well, how do you know when you've found it? Seen a bit of what it's like. How do you know when you've found it? Remember that parables are, they're simple stories. They're not the whole story. They're making a simple point, maybe two. But remember, they put you in the story. They're a sorting device. Um, They're a sorting device for Jesus' disciples so that When you've got these massive crowds gathering around Jesus, Jesus speaks in parables, and they, some stay and some go. And they also help the hearer to know who they are. That's the second question this parable is here to make us ask. First, consider, friends, your search. This man, this man in this particular parable may not have been searching. He may have been stumbling through a field, we're told. He may have been just walking through it and knocked his foot into this this treasure of some kind. But the next parable, verse 45, speaks of one who's searching. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Here's a man on a search, on a hunt for happiness, who in finding one pearl of great value, he knows it when he sees it. He went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. He says almost the same thing to us. We've got one here who's searching. The kingdom is worth searching for. If you're here searching... Keep searching, find it, find the kingdom, find the pearl of great value, find the treasure you're made to know right here in the gospel, in the face of Jesus, in his kingdom reign. There's a man who is out searching for valuable pearls. He knows it when he sees it. Well, how's your search going? Are your eyes on the marketplace of the world? Have you found in your search that it keeps going and that it keeps going? Watched a short Netflix documentary yesterday on, 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 on two, two men's search for happiness. 
and this and that object and this and that material thing and, and that wardrobe and that job and those cars. And their answer to the search for happiness, which they'd found wasn't yielding a whole lot of happiness, was to get rid of all those things and to have as few things as you can possibly have so that in the space that you have, where you previously had things and time managing things, you can think and wander about. So minimalism is the answer. Sometimes our best answer to the dissatisfaction of so many parts of life is just to give up on searching, give up on things. Well, that'll only last so long. There is a treasure to be found. There is a search worth keeping on. Chase, follow your heart in the sense that your heart longs for happiness. C.S. Lewis has put it, put it well. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for enjoyment is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant's and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, like this one today, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, one we're reading today, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. He finds them too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We, friends, are far too easily pleased. If you're dissatisfied with what the things of this world can provide for you, I mean, pick up the book Minimalism. It's probably good. Watch the documentary. I didn't finish it, but um, yeah, get rid of some of your stuff. Um, but you're not going to find happiness getting rid of stuff. Your heart's desire for happiness will lock onto something else. And there's only one thing that can fill you. And it's God himself. So turn to him. Don't give up your search. Don't get bored and looking. Lock onto the one thing that can fill you. Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know when you find the kingdom? When the gospel hits your ears and you keep listening? That's one way. When you hear the Bible preached or you, you read it and you find yourself a little hungry for more, that's a sign that you've got eyes to see and ears, ears to hear. And when you're puzzled by something Jesus says, you're not mad about it, but you're curious and you want an answer because you want to know what Jesus said because you're starting to trust him. You know he's right. Maybe you even haven't even admitted that yet. But you know he's got to be right because you're not right and no one else has been right. Consider your search and consider your, your satisfaction. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, see, he knows what he's found. He goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. How do you know when you found it? When you resonate with Paul's words in Philippians 3, which we read this morning. For we're the circumcision, he says. He's going to tick off his pedigree, his credentials, all that he's got. Who worship God by the Spirit and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself has reason for confidence in the flesh. Here's all that he's got. If anyone else thinks he's a reason for confidence... 
before God, it's me. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's got it all. I mean, this guy's been pursuing the religious life. He's super successful. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Does that sound like our verse? I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. That's a vulgar word in the text, by the way. We sang it. We said garbage this morning. It's rubbish right here. I won't say the real word. He's making a point. He counts it as nothing in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It's an interesting passage. On the one hand, he's confessing that Jesus is his all, and he wants to know more and more and more. And so, no doubt, you, when you sing the songs we sang this morning, uh, for not one of us, uh, is one claim that we made in song fully realized to its full extent in our heart, but do you resonate with it? Do you resonate with this? Has Jesus become for you really better than the rest of your life? With a gun to your head right now? To swear allegiance to Jesus or let him go and keep your life? Which do you pick? That's a test. And God may put other tests before you where there are certain costs that come for following Jesus. And those costs are really important. They're part of how Jesus, God, communicates to us that we're his. Lean into him. On the one hand, Paul says, He's counted all his loss for the sake of knowing Christ, and he's longing to know him more. So there's, there's something that he's found and something that he aspires to know more of. We need to ask the obvious question, can you buy the kingdom? I've said that parables don't say everything they could say. So he goes and sells all he has to buy the kingdom. Can you buy the kingdom? No. But didn't Jesus tell one man to sell all he has? Yes was his point to communicate the ticket price. No. It was to reveal in the hearer whether the hearer actually wanted what they claimed they wanted. The world's largest and oldest toy store can be found in London. It's 250 years old. Um, Hamley's Regent Street flagship store boasts seven floors of Playtime Nirvana. That sounds like fun. Take a child in there and say to the child, you can have any toy you want in there. The very best and most expensive toy can be yours. You just have to want it more than all the others. A perceptive way to put it by another preacher. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you want it? Well, you can have it. But you've got to have it over the other things. And if you're like, I'll just take the other things, you don't get it. Do you see? See, the heart's one, one evidence that God has actually given you a new heart is that the heart is drawn to Jesus himself. 
are you drawn to Jesus? I pray you are. Which brings us to our vision as a church. What we long to see God do. As those who have received a gospel inheritance. You remember our, our statement of identity. We're, a, we're God's people transformed by a gospel heritage. A heritage of Christ from beginning to end. A heritage found in scripture trustworthy and true, a heritage that comes to us by grace, grace which is forever, which is full, and which is free, like a spring of eternal living water without payment, and a heritage of faith for thirsty sinners from every nation, thank God, because we can come, and a heritage that is for the glory of our, our triune, our triune God, that's our identity, and our mission, what are we here for, what are we here to do that no one else is here to do? What are we here to do that we can't do later, friends? Church, what did Jesus send us into the world with a task to do? Our mission, as we've said it, is to spread the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, which are ours in him, broader in the world and deeper in the church. To spread his unsearchable riches broader in the world and deeper in the church. It's a spreading mission, a mission to spread the gospel, all that is ours in Christ, and to everyone broader in the world. And how do we do that? We do it by announcing these riches with words. They're transmitted through the spoken, preached, spoken word. And they're adorned. These words are adorned. They're made attractive with the good works of the church. The church's life. We spread these riches broader in the world. And we spread them deeper in the church. And why deeper in the church? Well, because God wants the church to know, every Christian to know, all of the wealth that is theirs that they will search out for eternity. And so Paul prayed, we saw last week, that we would know the surpassing worth of Jesus. That we would know his love, which surpasses all knowledge. It's why Paul prayed that very prayer. It's why Jesus taught us to obey all that he commanded, and that's part of discipleship, is that we would be taught to obey all that he commanded, because in his kingdom, our joy in him is realized and found and searched out in obedience to our glorious king whom we trust. There's a private, personal reason and a public reason that God wants the world to know how glorious he is, and his glory is radiated through the people that he and his gospel makes. The glory of his grace and his wisdom magnified in the life of the church, in her membership. That's why he says, make disciples, baptizing them. That the church would be defined. And the more careful a church is about its membership, the more it protects the power and the potency of its witness and its light in the community. And through its leadership, we saw in the early church the appointment of elders and deacons, spirit-filled men, qualified, able to teach, through its discipleship, growing together in sound doctrine and obedience and life and joy to Jesus. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 that the church, his people, would be one even as he as the Father were one. That love would characterize their, their relationships together in order that the world might know that you sent me, he says to his Father. The church, the church and her life and her beauty and her faithfulness is a radiant witness the world. A light on a hill, he calls it. That's our mission, to spread the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, broader in the world and deeper in the church. So what's our gospel vision? Here's how we'd like to put it, anchored in this passage and its imagery. What do we long to see God do here in the world, through us? We long to see people truly find and treasure Jesus forever. 
We long to see God save people and for people to truly find and treasure Jesus Christ forever. It's an earnest vision. It's a vision for something we long to see God do. It's commensurate with the vision of heaven that we'll see, where we know that men and women from every tribe and language and nation will surround Jesus' throne in song. It fuels our prayers. It's an earnest vision. It's a vision of people. God has people in his sights. Jesus had people in his sights. He sent us into the world even as he was sent, and we have people in our sights, not just ourselves in the mirror, and not even just our Christian friends, as much as we love our church, but as a church, we face out, because that's where the lost are. We're a light in a dark world, and our light belongs out. When we ask this question as elders cold, that is, we just said, what do we long to see God do through our church? We just ask it cold, marker board time. I wish you could have heard it, but I'll get you as close as you can. A wave of new believers from gospel sharing. A bold witness in personal evangelism for all of us. A baptism every Sunday. We're planting churches. More neighborhood attendance. Every believer making another disciple. And members are disciple makers. Every member a beacon of light. And our lights combine for a radiant witness. A vital witness to Jesus in our community which was my, it's more than a vision of just people, but it's a vision of people finding Jesus. Finding Jesus, truly finding him. Not people finding a seat in the auditorium. We're glad for anyone to be here and that you're here. We want more for you than to be at church. Not of people finding the words to say to make a mere profession. Not people finding mere moral transformation, finding within themselves sorrow for sin and a desire to be a better person. Not people finding their wallets and contributing in the plate. You don't need to give anything if you're not a member here. Not people finding the volunteer sign-up sheet. Not people finding us an attractive church. Not people finding out how bad hell really is, merely. Not people finding a list of rules they can keep so they can look like us. Not even people finding Jesus in some vague sense, but a vision of people truly finding Jesus and treasuring him. In our town, friends, there are a lot of people who think they found Jesus and haven't found him or treasured him for who he is. They haven't actually found him. And in our town, there are a lot of people who think they have rejected him, but they actually never had a fair introduction. They've had a lot of, like, uh, misunderstood introductions. And that's why there are plenty of confused people around us. Let us take nothing for granted. We long to see people truly find and treasure Jesus. It's an earnest vision. It's a vision of people. It's a vision of people finding Jesus. And it's a vision of full salvation. That word forever is important. Don't forget it. Don't miss it. There are Christianities on offer in our own age, on your TV, on your internet screen, and in our town that are good for this life and not much else. Jesus didn't die just for you for this life. He died for the much else, which begins in this life. How may they find this treasure? How can people find it? How can you find it? Well, parables don't tell us everything about salvation. They don't tell us about the new birth. There's nothing about faith, although it pictures what faith does and and coming to Jesus for all that he is. They don't do everything for us or tell everything for us about salvation, and neither do they tell us everything about how someone finds it. You and I are not to hide the treasure in a field and hope someone stubs their toe on it. 
We're a city on a hill. We don't hide our light under a basket. Friends, we may not feel impressive, and in fact, we shouldn't, but the gospel is impressive. And the treasure of this gospel, according to God's wisdom, is found in the clay jars of men and women that he saves for his purposes to show off his glory like you and me. Most people did not see the kingdom on a cross outside Jerusalem. And most people will not see a kingdom right here. But some will stumble upon it. Some will be drawn to it by our light and say, if I had to, I'd sell it all to have this. It's more precious than anything I've ever known. Well, may they find it on our lips and in the life of this beloved church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the treasure that is ours in Jesus. We thank you for the kingdom of which we're a part. Jesus' reign that we are under even right now. Even right now as we hear the preaching of the word, we're under his reign. We're being led by him, our shepherd king. And we thank you that when he speaks to us about what his kingdom is like, he wants us to know how happy, how happy it is. And when he sends us out to proclaim the kingdom, it's no begrudging thing. Oh, yes, we call people to a life of discipleship, a life with costs, to carry a cross and to count our lives as nothing, to find him. And yet, Father, as we offer this, may we never lose confidence that it is a good offer. Fill us with confidence in the riches that are ours in Jesus. And may we overflow in proclamation in bright, radiant witness, a vital witness to Jesus and his riches in our community. And Father, may we pray, even as we long from your word, that men and women, that people all throughout our community, indeed to the ends of the earth, our neighbors and the nations, would truly find and treasure Jesus Christ forever. Amen.